This is Incomplete Design History, a podcast that explores overlooked and ignored topics in graphic design history. It is our goal to deepen and expand the knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of design history. Because history is messy. It's incomplete. Thank you for joining us on Incomplete Design History. I'm your host, Mandy Horton. Season two of Incomplete Design History focuses on the stories of BIPOC designers and design culture. By the time they hit middle school, kids in Oklahoma schools have been taught that a Cherokee man by the name of Sequoia created the Cherokee alphabet. And that's pretty much the extent of their knowledge. It's not exactly their fault and not necessarily the fault of their teachers either. The truth is Sequoia is one of those really famous people that we don't really know that much about. The details of his history are confusing and the information is contradictory. It takes extra effort to tease apart the facts, the fictions, and the unknowns, and there's a distinct possibility that after all the research and reading that there are still more questions than answers. We couldn't let that stop us, simply because Sequoia's creation of the Cherokee syllabary is important. It marked a definite shift for the Cherokee people and their ability to own and preserve their language and culture. Before we go further, there's an important distinction to be made. What Sequoia actually created was not an alphabet, but a syllabary. What's the difference? First, let's acknowledge that while categorizing writing systems can be far more nuanced, generally speaking, there are three broad categories used to describe modern writing systems. These are logographies, alphabets, and syllabaries. Logographic writing systems tend to be the most complex sometimes having hundreds or even thousands of symbols or characters, since each symbol represents an entire word. The Chinese written language is logographic and literacy requires the knowledge of between three to 4,000 symbols, though the language reportedly has over 40,000 characters. An alphabetic writing system uses symbols to represent individual sounds, like the Latin alphabet, which consists of 26 symbols or letters. A syllabary uses symbols to represent syllables. Because syllables tend to be more complex than individual sounds, there tends to be more symbols used in a syllabary as compared to an alphabet, though not nearly as many as in a logography. For comparison to the Latin alphabet, the syllabary that Sequoia created has 85 unique symbols. But why consider a Native American syllabary in the context of graphic design history? In graphic design history, it is not uncommon to study the development of visual communication more broadly. In fact, Philip Meggs, the author of the first graphic design history textbook, and the one still used most widely today, was one of the first to consider the development of written language as essential to the study of visual communication and thus graphic design history. The development of writing from pictograms to phonograms as well as pictographic languages are often considered in this history. However, in Western histories of graphic design, the emphasis is on the development of the Latin alphabet. Indigenous syllabaries and languages are often left out of the history as if less important. A further complication is that many indigenous people in the US relied on oral histories rather than writing. So while many had their own individualized languages and still do, very few had their own writing systems. And most utilized the Latin alphabet when they adopted writing systems. There are a few exceptions, including Cree, Inuktitut, and of course, Cherokee. Up until the creation and widespread use of the syllabary, the Cherokee people, 
like many other indigenous cultures, relied on oral tradition for the preservation of their language, history, and culture. Academics sometimes differentiate between oral history and oral traditions and note the terms are not interchangeable. In this differentiation, oral history is regarded as an acceptable practice for research, which defines oral history as a method of qualitative research and more specifically as a method of collecting narratives from individuals for the purpose of research. Oral tradition, on the other hand, are stories passed down through generations. For example, some Native American traditions include handing down stories. Western history and historians have long valued written histories over oral traditions. In fact, considering oral history as previously defined as a method of research only started being viewed as acceptable in the 1970s. However, oral tradition has been typically used by cultures that have no writing system, where written history would not have been possible. Culture education, as defined by Adamola de Silva, is the particular means and methods of instruction by which a society imparts its body of values and mores in the pursuance and attainment of the society's collective vision, aspirations, and goals. Oral tradition is one method that many indigenous peoples have used to promote their own cultural education and is therefore deeply valued by these cultures. However, this method of instruction and for retaining and conveying history has been widely considered to be flawed or lesser to those of written histories. Writing is seen as the superior method for preserving information over space and time. Additionally, oral histories and oral traditions are considered more likely to contain mistakes from the method of passing down stories orally from person to person. Think of the children's game of telephone, where one child whispers a statement to another, which is in turn whispered to the next child and the next, and so on, until it makes its way around the group. The last child then repeats the statement out loud, and the group usually laughs over the changes to the original statement. This is how many historians view oral tradition, as an extensive game of telephone, and therefore the accuracy of oral histories cannot be trusted. There is a sense of fallibility and a potential for manipulation in these oral traditions that extends to memory. Historians tend to look for documented evidence, the more the better, to support history. The better something is documented, the more likely it is to be viewed as accurate. For these reasons and many others, historians tend to value written history over that of oral traditions. It has also been pointed out that written histories tend to be more prevalent in Western and white cultures, so the valuing of written histories over oral traditions tend to also value Western histories over non-Western and BIPOC histories. That tendency to privilege written histories is part of why it's hard to answer questions about Sequoia. Who was he? What do we know about him? While it is generally acknowledged that Sequoia lived from roughly 1766 to 1843, there is little else that these histories agree on, and even those dates are disputed. Sequoia is described as an elusive, enigmatic genius. His single-handed development of the Cherokee syllabary by itself is astounding since no other individual at this point had been credited with the development of an entire writing system. Most writing systems have been developed over a considerable amount of time, over many years, and in some cases potentially evolved over hundreds or thousands of years with many contributors. Yet despite this acclaim, he remains a figure of mystery. Part of the problem might be that the enigmatic figure that is known historically as Sequoia is known by many other names. 
including his reported Cherokee name of Sagwali, meaning horse. He is also known by the name George Guess or sometimes George Gist, which are reported to be his anglicized names. But which is correct, George Guess or George Gist? Many of the accounts state that this discrepancy might have to do with inaccuracies in spelling in historical documents. There are many incomplete records of family heritage in the United States that point to name changes or shifts in pronunciation or spelling. Author and historian Stan Hoig in particular states that the name Gist and Guess are quite similar sounding and proposes that Guess was the result of the mispronunciation and misspelling of the name Gist, which was a common issue at the time. Ultimately, Sequoia's heritage is somewhat debated and there are many variations of the stories told about his life. Some are in what we would call mainstream histories, while the last one, reportedly told by Sequoia's heirs, is largely disregarded by mainstream historians. Many of the mainstream historians indicate that Sequoia was the son of an unnamed Cherokee woman and a white trader named Nathaniel Gist. This version of the story seems to connect Sequoia to the name George Gist. However, the name George Gist is the anglicized name for Sequoia that is repeated most often. So where does this name come from? Perhaps Hoag is correct, and it is simply the result of mispronunciations and misspellings. The story of Sequoia related by Traveler Bird in Tell Them They Lie, the Sequoia myth is a very compelling account, though it is largely unsupported by historical evidence. Bird argues that Sequoia was not half Cherokee and half white, as many Western histories indicate. Instead, he was full-blood Native American. Bird goes on to claim that these Western histories by indicating that Sequoia was half white, are used to legitimize Sequoia and the Cherokee syllabary to a white society that couldn't accept an entire written language came from an indigenous person. It should be noted that other historians acknowledge the discrepancies in his genealogy and acknowledge that some of his descendants dispute the claims that he was half white and claim instead that he was full-blood Cherokee. Additionally, the bird version of the Sequoia story indicates that his Cherokee name was Sagwali, not Sequoia, and claims the name Sequoia has no meaning in the Cherokee language. Despite this assertion, the author continues to refer to Sagwali as Sequoia throughout the book. Is this simply because history has called him Sequoia for so long that it would be confusing for readers to transition to calling him Sagwali? It is unclear from the narrative. Another place where these accounts disagree is the question of faith. Many mainstream histories of Sequoia indicate that he converted to Christianity. Traveler Bird emphatically denies this allegation, once again stating that this is a way to make Sequoia's life and story more palatable to white audiences. But he claims that Sequoia was dedicated throughout his entire life to the traditional beliefs of his people. It should be noted that Hoeg's account also states that Sequoia remained true to these beliefs never converted to Christianity, so Bird has some support here. Bird also argues that the one officially recorded portrait of Sequoia, said to have been painted by Charles Bird King in 1828 during a visit to Washington, is not Sequoia at all, but instead another Cherokee named Thomas Maw. In his account, Bird described a divide in the Cherokee Nation, in which one group is determined to continue to live a traditional life on traditional Cherokee lands, far away from white invaders, and that another group, which has succumbed to the seduction of the white settlers and their way of life by their treaties and by their money. 
The second group supported assimilation and was all too ready to sell off their lands for profit to the American government. Hoag's account states that Sequoia was part of a delegation of Cherokees that traveled to Washington in order to negotiate with the American government. It was during this visit that the portrait was supposedly painted. Byrd insists that Sequoia was never there, would never have agreed to have been part of the group. Instead, he was an active resistor to white settlement along with the warrior chief Dragon Canoe. According to Byrd, there has never been a painting nor photograph of George Guest nor George Gist known in history as Sequoia. He insists instead that Thomas Maul was chosen to stand in for Sequoia as Maul was part of the delegation and a supporter of assimilation. The Hoag account does not dispute that the 1828 painting is of Sequoia, but it does indicate perhaps a discrepancy in the painting. Sequoia is shown wearing a medal that was struck by the Cherokee Nation to commemorate his invention of the Cherokee syllabary. Yet according to records, though the medal would have been made at this point, Sequoia would not yet have it in his possession. Unwilling or unable to travel to the Cherokee Nation to receive his recognition, it was sent to him at a later date. Does the presence of the medal in the painting acknowledge or point to the possibility of other inaccuracies within the portrait? This disputed portrait was part of the Smithsonian collection and unfortunately it was destroyed in a fire in 1865 at the Smithsonian Castle. What exists today as part of the collection is a reproduction. Furthermore, in the Bird account, it is Dragon Canoe who proposes Sequoia take the name of George Guess. In this version of events, Sequoia kills a white man named George Guess and at the direction of Dragon Canoe assumes his identity in order to better seek revenge against white invaders. Despite the many differences in these accounts, one similarity in both stories is the accusations of witchcraft in the development of the syllabary. Apparently, the Cherokee people were disturbed by the development and the creation of the syllabary, resulting in Sequoia being accused of witchcraft. But the similarities end here. In Hoag's version of events, tensions mounted among the Cherokee as Sequoia worked on the syllabary. But once he showed them all how it worked, their fears were alleviated and the accusations went away. In Byrd's account, however, these accusations led to one of the most defining differences in these two versions of Sequoia's life. According to Byrd, Sequoia was disfigured, branded on the forehead, had his ears cropped, and the ends of his fingers removed between the first and second joints. Sequoia had been found guilty of witchcraft, and all of this disfigurement was the result of his guilty verdict in a trial of witchcraft that took place in 1816. Byrd also indicates that the trial had broader implications to his resistance to assimilation and claims that his accusers were among a group of Cherokee that wanted to sign treaties with the Americans. The trial was a sham, an attempt to suppress Sequoia's efforts of resistance, which included the development of the Cherokee syllabary. So who was Sequoia? Was he the respectable Cherokee depicted in Charles Byrd King's 1828 portrait? shown in traditional Cherokee clothing smoking a calumet, otherwise known as George Guess or George Gist? Or was this painting a fake, as reported by Traveler Bird? As in his version of events, Sequoia would have been disfigured by the time of the portrait painting, with his ears cropped, forehead branded, and fingers mere stubs. Ultimately, the problem with Traveler Bird's story is the absence of evidence. While there's not a lot of evidence and historical records about Sequoia generally, there is more evidence that supports the narratives told by authors Hoog and Foreman. 
Bird claims to have inherited records that prove his version of events as a descendant of Sequoia, but has refused to share these documents with other historians. However, some historical documents help tell the story of Sequoia, but these documents just don't support the story that Bird tells. Keep in mind that one of the big concerns for most historians in documenting history is, well, the documents. So this is where the major disputes arise in telling Sequoia's story. Both the Foreman and the Hogue biographies are largely based on access to documented history. Though Foreman's biography doesn't contain footnotes, endnotes, and only a minimal bibliography at best, which is somewhat problematic in academic research, he does mention documented resources in the content throughout the text. Yet this lack of a detailed formal bibliography makes it more difficult to check his sources. Foreman mentions that the essayist and author Samuel Lorenzo Knapp was said to have interviewed several of the Cherokee delegation who traveled to Washington, D.C. through interpreters. The inference is made that Knapp interviewed Sequoia as part of this delegation, as Sequoia would have been the subject of one of his lectures and would be reprinted in a Cherokee advocate. But of course, the story of Sequoia from Traveler Bird's perspective is that Sequoia was never there, that a fake was posing as Sequoia. So in this version of events, the interview might have taken place, but it wasn't the real Sequoia. Foreman also references letters from Sequoia as documents used for his bibliography, though it's likely that Bird would cite these letters as fake as well. The Hoag biography, on the other hand, has well-documented sources in a well-organized bibliography that contains articles, books, collections, government documents, and newspaper sources, each under their own heading. Finally, Traveler Bird asserts that his sources include not only oral traditions handed down from his family, who are reported to be Sequoia's own children and heirs, but he also claims to have a collection of documents to support his narrative. Unfortunately, this collection has not been made available for historians to review, so they largely disregard this narrative since they are unable to confirm these documents. So what is fact and what is fiction about the life of Sequoia? What can we trust? It is hard to know and some mysteries won't ever be solved. It should be noted that there are other individuals who claim to be descendants of Sequoia and whose heritage is recorded on Cherokee rolls who do not support the traveler bird narrative of Sequoia's life. In addition to the mystery surrounding Sequoia's life, there is some debate about the creation of the syllabary with a few differing theories on how the syllabary came to be. The theory with the most historical supporting evidence and therefore most widely accepted by historians is that Sequoia single-handedly developed the written language. It seems apparent from the symbols used in the script that he drew a fair amount of influence from the Latin alphabet, but at the same time, the symbols are quite unique. Despite the widespread acceptance of this theory, there is at least one theory stating that Christian missionaries in the Appalachian region of North America discovered an ancient, perhaps pictographic, written language used by the Cherokee peoples and adapted it to a printing press in order to convert Cherokee people to their Christian beliefs. It seems to connect with the broader tale of Sequoia since the Cherokee language was used by missionaries to convert the Cherokee to Christianity. This version gives credit to Christian missionaries, but doesn't seem to be widely accepted by historians, most of which acknowledge Sequoia as the sole creator of the Cherokee syllabary. There is also a lesser known possible third theory, which gives a majority of the credit of the development and refinement of the syllabary to Sequoia, but indicating possible influence from earlier pictographic Cherokee writing. 
This is the theory Traveler Bird proposes, claiming this influence predates Columbus's arrival and supposed discovery. Despite the widespread belief in the first theory, there has been some possible evidence of a connection to an earlier writing or pictographic system known as the Red Bird River petroglyphs. A group of archaeologists examined photographs of the petroglyphs that were taken in the 1960s. This was necessary because the current site has been marred by modern-day graffiti, and the original petroglyphs have become too difficult to decipher. The conclusion that they came to is that there are some distinctive similarities between the syllabary developed by Sequoia and the symbols present in the petroglyphs. They believe these symbols might have been an influence to the syllabary, indicating the possible use of an earlier pictographic language as a basis for the Cherokee syllabary, possibly lending some credence to Traveler Bird's story. This theory is not well established and is hotly debated so much so that it was immediately refuted by another group of archaeologists who provided many arguments against it. What does seem to be accepted widely is the instant success of the syllabary when it was introduced to the Cherokee people. Once they got past the concerns about witchcraft, the language was widely adopted. And potentially more important, or at least a factor in why it was so successful, is that it was apparently quite easy to learn. The Cherokee people, previously being illiterate, having had no written language at all, were able to pick up the syllabary and start using it effectively to send letters within a few days of instruction. Hoag indicates how quickly people were able to pick up and begin using the Cherokee written language. A novice could commence letter writing after a learning period of only three days. It is often cited that the average learner takes four years to become fully literate in the English language. The missionaries who had been trying to teach the Cherokee to read and write English were amazed by the instant success of the Cherokee syllabary, especially since their efforts had been so difficult. They immediately began investigating the use of the written language for their own purposes, mainly the conversion of Cherokee to Christianity. After an initial investigation into the potential use of the language, an official recommendation was made to use the language for the purpose of converting the Cherokee to Christianity which became the accepted practice. Immediately, efforts to translate Christian text into Cherokee began, and at least four Gospels were published fairly early on. It is said that Sequoia was not pleased with the use of his writing system to convert the Cherokees to Christianity. According to Hoag, a printer working with a Cherokee named John Wheeler said Sequoia told missionaries that if he had known that they were going to use the system to convert the Cherokee to Christianity, he would never would have invented it. Despite these unintended consequences, literacy caused an awakening of the Cherokee's native culture and provided them with a new sense of tribal identity. Interestingly, some biographies attribute the printing of the Bible in Cherokee to Sequoia, though this is clearly not the case though this might be where some of the confusion about his conversion to Christianity comes from. Despite the disappointment, Sequoia must have been proud of his creation and ensuring that the Cherokee people could read and write in their own language using their own symbols. Because of the influence of Christian missionaries, the first document printed in the Cherokee language was a translation of the first five verses of the book of Genesis, which was printed in 1827. And interestingly enough, the Cherokee Nation was given access to a printing press by these missionaries. However, they were not versed on how to use it, so the first printer in the Cherokee language was a white printer named John F. Wheeler, who along with his three Cherokee assistants, Mark Taylor, John Candy, and Thomas White, 
who helped establish a newspaper for the Cherokee Nation with editor Elias Boudinot, which became known as the Cherokee Phoenix. The creation of Sequoia Syllabary is connected to the founding of the Cherokee Phoenix, which was a newspaper originally printed in New Echota, which is in present-day Georgia, which was the capital at the time of the Cherokee Nation. Founded in 1828 by Elias Boudinot, Cherokee, and editor, along with Samuel Worcester, missionary to the Cherokee, and defender of Cherokee sovereignty, this newspaper was the first bilingual indigenous newspaper in the U.S., and it was printed in English using the Latin alphabet, of course, as well as Cherokee using the Cherokee syllabary. One issue that Wheeler had to overcome in printing for the Cherokee Nation was that there was no typesetter's job cases that had 85 sections needed to house the symbols used in the syllabary, so one had to be made. Fortunately, Wheeler was very capable of making a job case to house these Cherokee types. In the 1830s, Cherokee Nation leaders, such as Chief John Ross and editor Elias Boudinot, used the Cherokee Phoenix to editorialize against the Indian Removal Act, drawing the ire of Indian removal supporters. The Cherokee Phoenix was printed in New Echota until 1834 when it was seized by the Georgia military. This was part of the efforts made by the state government of Georgia and the federal government to force the Cherokee to relocate. As part of these efforts, Samuel Worcester was arrested by the Georgia militia for residing on native lands without a permit. This seems to have been a retaliation for Worcester's support of Cherokee sovereignty. The case went before the U.S. Supreme Court, which made a landmark decision that the action infringed on the rights of the native people. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that American Indian nations were distinct, independent political communities retaining their original natural rights and entitled to federal protection from the actions of state governments that infringed on their sovereignty. This has been cited as a major win for Native sovereignty, yet it would fail to protect them from relocation. The Cherokee were forced to relocate. John Wheeler traveled with them to help set up the press and reestablish the printing of the Cherokee newspaper. Eventually, Wheeler would settle in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where he became a pioneer newspaper man. Beginning in 1844 in Tahlequah, located at the time in Indian Territory, now present-day Oklahoma, the newspaper was restarted, this time by William Porter Ross, a graduate of Princeton. However, the newspaper of the Cherokee Nation was now called the Cherokee Advocate. The Cherokee Phoenix was restarted in 2007 as a website and online newspaper and continues today to report news of the tribal government, people, and culture. Unfortunately, it appears that little of Sequoia's syllabary is used in the contemporary version of the Cherokee Phoenix. It seems that only section heads are labeled in both English and Cherokee side by side. Arguably, the most significant impact of Sequoia's invention of the Cherokee syllabary, as author and historian Stan Hoog points out, is that the invention disputes the predominant narrative of Native Americans as being noble savages. Indeed, the creation of a complex writing system could not be the work of a savage, but instead a creative genius. It has also been noted that the development of an alphabet by an untutored Indian did great harm to the contention of Indian inferiority. Many used the idea of Indian inferiority to legitimize the appalling treatment of indigenous people in this country, as well as their removal from their rightful lands. But the impact of the invention is greater than that. The Cherokee syllabary was instrumental in making the Cherokee people literate, helping them establish their own written culture and documentation. 
Sequoia syllabary is often cited as an influence to many of the writing systems of Africa, apparently brought to the Africans by Christian missionaries. Much more could be said of Sequoia's impact on the Cherokee people, but Grant Foreman put it best. Sequoia is celebrated as an illiterate Indian genius who solely from the resources of his mind endowed a whole tribe with learning, the only man in history to conceive and perfect in its entirety an alphabet or syllabary. This episode was produced with the aid of a grant from the University of Central Oklahoma. Research and writing credits for this episode are from me, Mandy Horton. Special thanks to UCO faculty Timothy Petit for additional feedback on this episode and on sharing resources about Sequoia. With research assistance provided by Ebony Sales and Dean Kelly. Story editing provided by Spencer Gee. Sound design and engineering by the University of Central Oklahoma Center for E-Learning and Connected Environments. Music by Christina Giacona and Patrick Conlon of Phonics Lane. If you would like to contact me about this episode or about the podcast, please email me at hello at idh.fm. That is H-E-L-L-O at idh.fm. Our website can be found at idh.fm. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Incomplete Design History.